All right, Romans chapter 13, the the message this morning is entitled, What We Owe the World. What We Owe the World, and and last week, Cody did an awesome job introducing us to Romans chapter 13 and how we, as, as God has allowed us to understand from his word, God has established all authority. And, and in Romans chapter 13, God gives us instruction on how we're to relate to this world system. And one of the things that we learned last week is that we need to be submissive uh, to the authority, to the powers that be, because they're ordained of God. Uh, God even says that, that authorities in this life and in this world physically are the ministers of God. And so governments and law enforcements and things like that, any type of authority ultimately comes from God because God's the authority. And God mirrors his authority throughout this world, both to the saved and to the lost through established authority. And we're called to submit to authority physically. We're not at war against authority physically, but we do wrestle spiritually in this world. And we need to remember, just like we learned last week, and man, listen, the governments of this world and law enforcement and people in authority in this world aren't our enemy. They just work for him because they're lost, many of them. We need to re- be reminded that as we submit to authority in this world, we're called to wage war spiritually with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2 reminds us that we're to pray for those that are in authority so that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So ultimately, that we can share the gospel. We, we need to pray for our, our leadership and those in authority so that we can be about God's business and we can do it peacefully. And if that can't happen, we still need to be about God's business, uh, irregardless. And so, and so this morning, we're going to take it kind of the next section of, of verses. Uh, by the grace of God, we'll finish this this morning, verses 8 to 14. We're talking about what we owe the world. So, so last week, we learned how we're to respond to the world. And, in other words, submit to its authorities But this morning, we're going to learn what we owe the world. Pick it up in verse 8. The Bible says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any commandment, it's briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill toward his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, and that knowing the time, that it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light, let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And so as we get into this passage this morning, I want to show you there are, there are five things that as a child of God, we owe the world. You say, man, I don't owe anybody anything. Well, let me prayerfully change your mind this morning from the word of God, because God tells us, number one, in your notes, number one, we as believers in Christ, we owe the world love. We owe the world love, and it's the love of Christ. Verse eight says that, that we're not to owe any man anything, and that's not like a Dave Ramsey verse you know, necessarily that we're to, you know, whatever. If anybody's got bills, raise their hand. My people. Okay. All right. But, but so we owe people some stuff, but here's the thing that we really should owe the world. We're, we're, we're to love one another because he that loves another hath fulfilled the law. And what Paul does in, in Romans 13 is he goes back to the, the 10 commandments. 
And what he does is he pulls out the Ten Commandments. He doesn't give the list of all ten, but what he does is he pulls out several that, that deal with how we relate to each other. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's something that you do against another person, against your neighbor, right? Uh, thou shalt not kill. That's something that you do against another person. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covenant. So here's the key in your notes. These are all sins done against another person. Specifically, they're, they're, they're done against your neighbor. They're done against your neighbor. And listen, God, God is instructing us that as we live out our faith in this world, we are called and we owe the world the love of Christ. That's what we owe them. We don't, we don't owe them what they deserve. God didn't give you and I what we deserved. God gave us his love. Man, what did we deserve? We deserve death, hell, and separation from God for all of eternity because of our sin. That's what we deserved. But you know what God gave us in spite of that? He gave us his love. He gave us Christ. And, and so as Paul reaches back into Exodus 20, he pulls out of the Ten Commandments those that are specific to sins that are done against your neighbor. Now, when you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, you see the word neighbor mentioned the very first time in your Bible. It says in Exodus 3 and verse 22, and this is concerning Israel coming out of Egypt, coming out of bondage. He says, every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver, jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians. And so, and, and so the first mention of the word neighbor is Israel in Egypt. And if you remember the story, they were in bondage. They were under Pharaoh. And God told them, I'm about to jailbreak you out of here. Go to your neighbor and don't borrow a cup of flour or a cup of sugar. Go to your neighbor and borrow, uh, you know, jewels of silver and jewels of gold, right? Because God was about to, to cause them to leave the land of Egypt. So, so literally, our neighbors are those people that are in close proximity to us as we live out life. For the nation of Israel, it was Egypt because they were surrounded with people that were Egyptians, that weren't Israelites, and they were neighbor to the Israelites. And, and so, and so the, the point Paul is making is the people in this life that you're in close proximity to, you owe them something. And what you owe them is the love of Christ. You owe them Christ. You, you owe them Christ's love. You, you owe them to love them as yourself. That's what you owe them. That's, that's all the way back in the Levitical law. Now listen, anybody got crazy neighbors? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Listen, man, sometimes your neighbors can be, you know, what's the saying? Like tall fences make good neighbors, right? I would add to that soundproofing also makes really good neighbors. Okay, but <laughs> I'm trying not to get in trouble here. Usually my wife's in here. My wife is in here to help me check the balances here. I don't see her this morning. Okay, she's in the back with the kids. Uh, all the way back in Leviticus, Levit Levitical law, God lays out this principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt, in any, shalt not in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then, and then the Lord just says, hey, I just want you to know I'm God. So I'm telling you that, and the one that's telling you that's God. 
We see it echoed in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus himself was on this planet. There was a lawyer that asked him a question tempting him. Matthew 22 verse 36 says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is likened to it. So you have a first commandment and a second, right? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Okay, if you want to summarize the entire law in the Old Testament, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that, that's a summary of your Old Testament. And so, and so God's word tells us that loving our neighbor and loving is, is a fulfilling of the law. Now, here's where some people get messed up in this passage. They use this passage to somehow fulfill the law for righteousness in their own life. In other words, some people would say, well, if I just do enough good works toward my neighbor, that will make me righteous in God's eyes. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Some people would say that God's going to judge me, and as long as my good outweighs my bad, that the, the scales will tip in my favor, and I'll have to be accepted in God's eyes. And they'll come to a passage like loving your neighbor as yourself and base salvation on a text like that. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. This morning, as we look at this text, this is not teaching, here's the key in your notes, it's not teaching works-based salvation, but rather it's teaching salvation-based works. In other words, if you love your neighbor as yourself, but you still reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. That will not earn you salvation. Works-based salvation will not accomplish righteousness in your life. But rather, what God is teaching us in Romans 13 is that because we are saved, there ought to be some works that manifest out of our life toward the lost world. And, And so here's the point. Every professing believer in Christ ought to be able to give the love of Christ to, the, to other people, to their neighbors. Why? Because we've experienced it ourselves. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 8 to 10 says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And I just want to make the point you are called to love your neighbor, but listen, if you're, if you're trying to love your neighbor to earn your salvation, it won't be enough. It just won't be enough. Because if you offend in any point in the Old Testament law, if you offend in one point, the Bible says you're guilty of all of it. You can't work your way to Christ you, or, or to God. You can't, you can't work for your salvation. The only works-based salvation is the work that Christ did on the cross of Calvary for you and I. That's it. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. All we can do is believe what Christ has done is sufficient for our sin. That's it. But but if we've been saved and if we believe the finished work of Christ, we, we have literally an example in Christ of how we're to love other people. And other people get on your nerves, man, right? I mean, don't look across the other side of the church. I know what you're thinking, but look, don't, don't, look, don't give stink out of that person right now. But I'm telling you, man, it, sometimes people are hard. They're, they're difficult to love. They're hard, man. 
we were hard to love. And Christ, in our sin, loved us so much that he was willing to give his life. And, and, and so we, we as Christians, we, we owe the world the love of Christ. Instead of sitting back and, and saying, man, they deserve what they get, we, we, need, we need to realize that we as children of God owe them the love of Christ that we have experienced ourselves. That's point number one. Number two, we owe it to the world as believers in Christ to wake up, to wake up. And, and I'm not talking about you sleeping in church this morning, but I want you to look back at verse 11. It says, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So how many of you, when you go to bed at night, you set an alarm? Anybody set an alarm? Cody, Cody doesn't set an alarm. Cody, Cody's got this natural, just internal alarm. What time do you get up, brother? Like 4 a.m., something like that? 3.45 a.m. Pray for this man, all right? <laughs> no good thing is happening at 3.45 a.m. <laughs> I don't even think God's awake. I know he never sleeps or slumbers, but, I mean, he might be cat catnapping. I don't know, man. All right, so look, we set an alarm. We set an alarm to wake up because we have to be somewhere, like work, and usually we have to be there at a certain time, right? And, and so, you know, uh, again, it, uh, this may be a good memory verse for anybody that can't make it to church at 11. Okay, anyways, <laughs> moving on. God, God tells us that knowing the time, it's high time to awake out of sleep. And here's why. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And, and so we owe the world, as Christians, we owe the world the fact that we need to wake up as Christians. And verse 12, if you read into verse 12 in your Bible real quick, it tells us that the night is far spent, the day is at hand. And what day is it talking about? Well, it's, it's the day of the Lord, but, but also specifically, verse 11 tells us it's the day of our salvation. It's the day of our salvation. And, and if you read that, verse 11 says that our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Now, how many of you, when you read that, you think, I thought salvation was when I believed? That, that's kind of what the Bible says. And the answer to that is yes, but I want you to understand that there are three realities concerning our salvation. You see, number one, we got justified in the past. The Bible talks about the fact that we are justified. We are made just as if we have never sinned in Christ. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to save us from our sin. The Bible says that we're justified. Look at Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so if you in your mind can go back to that date or that place where you heard the gospel and you prayed and asked Christ to save you from your sin, when you believed, the Bible says that you were justified freely. At that moment, you were made in Christ like you had never sinned before. God looks at you just as if you had never sinned. That's what justification is according to the Bible. But, but presently, you, have, you, you are being sanctified. So this is the present working out of your salvation. Your salvation had a past moment, but it also has a present application and moment because being sanctified means that we're presently being set apart from the world unto Christ. And look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. 
The Bible says this is the will of God, even your what? Sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. So salvation is not just something that happened in the past. It did happen in the past. But salvation is a working out of of separating you from this world presently. That's part of that's part of the deal. That we're to be sanctified. That listen, it, it it's the will of God that we be set apart from this world. And, and then our, our salvation has a future application as well, because one day we're going to be glorified. And, and this is what the Bible talks about uh, concerning the adoption. It, it has to do with the redemption of our body. Because listen, when we got saved, the second after you got saved and you looked in the mirror, you looked the same. You were just as ugly before as that. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry, that's just me. Never mind. <laughs> I looked in the mirror and I didn't, I was hoping to see like this angelic presence or like Christ. And no, it's just Jay in the mirror. It's just Jay. I didn't get a glorified body yet, but that's coming in the future. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 11. He says, when our salvation is nearer than when we believed, what he's talking about is when we're raptured, when we receive a glorified body. Romans 8, verse 17, it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, we shall be also glorified together. And so listen, at salvation, our body has not yet been redeemed, but it will be. And it will be at the day, the day of our salvation, which happens to also in the Bible to be called the day of Christ. And if you want to write some references down, Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, Philippians chapter 2, and verse 16. Here's why this is important. Because the day of our salvation is nearer than when we believed in the past, the understanding that, that one day Christ is coming to redeem us from this earth and giving us a glorified body the rapture of the church, that ought to be our alarm. That, that ought to be the thing that causes us to wake up and get going with the things that God has given us to do. And so in your notes, look, the imminency of the rapture should awaken us from sleep. I mean, the rapture ought to make every Christian, listen, if you, had, if you could mark on your calendar that one week from today, the rapture would happen for the church of Jesus Christ. You'd be taken and caught up from this earth. You would be given a glorified body, and you would see Jesus Christ face to face. If you could put that on your calendar, would you live any different this week than what you lived last week? And we all would say, yes. Well, listen, God says that our salvation is nearer than when we believed. So let's just wake up. It's time for the church to wake up. I mean, you know, the sad, the sad reality is that the Laodicean Christianity that we live in is just asleep. Man, it's just asleep. God tells us three times in the Pauline epistles that we as Christians need to wake up. He tells us in Romans 13 that, that because we know what time it is, we need to awake out of sleep. In, a, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 34, Paul writes and he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
In other words, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, you jokers need to wake up because there are people around you in Corinth and in your area of the world that don't know who Christ is. So wake up and get busy. I didn't say it, God said it. God is using a very clear alarm clock for the saint to waken, to get busy. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Seeing then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. You see, because we know what time it is, we know that the night is far spent. The night in the Bible is the church age. And the night is far spent. And in Paul's day, it's interesting that Paul in his day said the night is far spent. And we're 2,000 years past that. How much more far spent is it? Paul says, listen, because we know what time it is, because we know the night is far spent, because we know that the day of Christ is literally at hand, we need to wake up so that we can redeem the time, so that we can buy back the time that was lost, so we can tell others about Christ. People in this world need the knowledge of God. And the only way they're going to get it is from some Christians who have decided to wake up. But you know the problem in our culture is everybody else in this world seems to be woke except Christians. You see, we got woke politicians that say they're woke and they're aware and, and, and awake to the insensitivities and problems in this world. We have woke activists that realize injustices and that are vocalizing their displeasure and, and concern. We have woke athletes that are speaking out on political issues and social issues and economic issues. We have woke social justice advocates. But the problem is, we don't have any woke Christians. They're asleep. They're clueless. That listen, the moment that the rapture happens, the church's mission is over. There's never another chance to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to another person. There's never another chance to disciple a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's never another chance to share the knowledge of God with another human being. Time's up. So we need to wake up. We owe it to the world to wake up. How are they going to get the knowledge of God otherwise? So Paul says that we owe the world the love of Christ. Number two, Paul says we owe it to the world to wake up. Number three, Paul says that we owe it to the world to wear the right attire. To wear the right attire. Look at verse 12. The Bible says the night is far spent, the day is at hand. This is the day of Christ which leads into the day of the Lord. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 
And I just want to go back to the analogy, man. We set an alarm, right? And, and we wake up, and, and we know because of the alarm that we have to be at a certain place at a certain time. And listen, when we roll out of the bed in the morning, we all need coffee first, and I understand that, and maybe a shower. But listen, before we leave the house, we generally walk out of the house with a, with, with a proper set of clothing on. I mean, you wake up, but before you walk out of the house, you got to make sure you have on the right attire. I remember as a kid, maybe I, I, had some, I had a lot of problems as a kid, but I remember like in middle school especially, anybody ever have that nightmare like you were in school and you showed up at school and, and like you went through a, you know, a class or two, but then you realized you forgot to get dressed? Anybody have that nightmare as a kid or is that just me? Did anybody have that? I mean, seriously. Nobody, Dave is like, you're smoking something. Okay, listen, raise your hand if you've had that nightmare. I'm at school, I, I forgot to get dressed. Okay, you're all weird like me. Hallelujah. All right. My people, that's a horrible nightmare, by the way. You're like, <gasps> you know. You know, those of you that experience that, you know the, 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 the sheer terror of that, right? Can I just tell you that Christians, man, Christians a lot of times, they may be awake, but they're not wearing the right clothing, if any clothing. So God tells us that we need to cast some things off. Look at, look at Ephesians 5, and verses 8 through 11. The Bible tells us that we need to cast off the works of darkness. We need to cast off the works of darkness. Ephesians 5 and verse, verses 8 through 11, it says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You see, you see a Christian needs to wake up but he also needs to put some things off. And what he needs to put off is the works of darkness. Because we can't put on the armor of light that we'll talk about in just a second when we are living out the works of darkness in our life. Light and darkness can't coexist. Do you understand that? They cannot coexist. We don't have the time. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, God tells us that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep because Lucifer had lost his, his position. He had fell between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Because light and darkness, well, they can't coexist. There's a division. There's a separation. And listen, we owe it to the world not only to wake up, but we owe it to the world to wear the right attire. In other words, the Christian's life, it shouldn't be full of works of darkness. What it should, what it should have is the armor of light. Look at it. Look at it. Look at um, Look back at your text at verse 12. We're to put on the armor of light. My dad served in the military, and so I grew up in a military home, and it's just, it's just cool to see a, a soldier in uniform. You know, it, I, I appreciate that. I know many of our uh, church family have served, and, and, you know, when you see a soldier in uniform, there's no question about what he stands for. There's no question about what government he serves. And there's no question about who he's fighting for. You see, because when you have on armor, when you have on the right uniform, 
your purpose and your identity and, and who you really serve and what you're fighting for, it's abundantly clear because you have the right attire on, right? And, and, and so listen, the same should be true of a Christian. There should be no doubt in this lost world who you and I stand for. There should be no doubt in this lost world what government we truly serve. It's King Jesus. Are you Democrat or Republican? Um, neither. <laughs> I'm for the King. <laughs> the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and his government is going to be perfect. <laughs> and that's who I'm for, man. I, that's who I'm for. Uh, we know as children of God who we're fighting for and who we're fighting with. And, and God tells us to put on the armor of light, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. It's called, it's called the armor of light in Romans 13. It's also called the armor of righteousness in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. Very quickly, Paul writes and he says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. And by the way, he's about to list some things that approve us as ministers of God. So if you want to know if you're a good minister of God, check this list. Here's how you're approved as a minister of God. Number one, in much patience. That probably cleared half of us out right there. In afflictions. By the way, you, you, you gain patience in afflictions, right? In necessities. In distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tolments, in labors, watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, the power of God. Listen, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Do you know how you are approved as a minister of God? You're wearing the right attire. You have on the armor of light. It's what approves you. It's interesting that both hands are covered. That means nothing is uncovered. In Ephesians chapter 6, this same armor is called the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6 and verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here's the point. We owe the world love. We owe the world that that we need to be spiritually awake as children of God. Thirdly, we owe it to the world that we need to look the part. We need to be wearing the right outfit. And there should be no question who you're fighting for, who you stand for, who you serve, who you trust, what government really you're all about. Well, it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. And then number four, we owe it to the world, number four, to walk honestly. And, and I hope you can kind of see that progression, right? We wake up, we wear the right thing, but then thirdly, we're, we're to walk. We're, we're to walk. And so in verse 13, it says, let us walk honestly as in the day. In other words, let's, let's walk now just like we're going to walk when we see Christ not in riding and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and in envying. In other words, once we're awake and we're wearing the right attire, it's time to walk. That word honestly is an adverb. It tells us how to walk. We're to walk honestly. We're called to walk honestly. Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through, through 12. Uh, I don't have it on the screen, so let me just read it to you. Verse 12 says that we are called to walk honestly toward them that are without. In other words, those that are lost. 
that we have no, that we have lack of nothing. The point is, our talk has got to match our walk, and our walk's got to match our talk. Uh, God gives us six ways that we're not to walk in this passage, and it's interesting that He breaks these six things down in pairs. He says rioting and drunkenness, and, and there's a ton of references I have in my notes, but for time's sake, we're, we're not going to have time to go through them. But rioting and drunkenness are two things that a Christian shouldn't be walking in. And interestingly, there is a connection in the Bible. Maybe the more drunk you get, the more riotous you are. Uh, you you kind of do some things under the influence that you wouldn't do normally. Say some things under the influence you wouldn't do normally confront people <laughs> under the influence that you wouldn't normally confront, right? First uh, Peter talks about how when we were lost, we were as other Gentiles. We walked in lasciviousness and lust, in excess of wine. And then it talks about in verse 4, excessive riot. That's kind of how we were in our lost state. We're riotous. Drunkenness is a work of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 21 tells us that the works of the flesh are manifest and it gives us a, a list of things included in that list is drunkenness. And so over and over in Scripture, God tells us that the Christian is forbidden to get drunk. Uh, very clearly, man, we're not to be drunk. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Why? Because you can't walk right if you're drunk. You just can't. And it will lead to riotous behavior that doesn't reflect Christ. The second set of pair, the second pair of ways we're not to walk is in chambering and wantonness. And, and those aren't words you probably used this week in communication with other people. But, but chambering literally means lewd or immoral behavior. It, it comes from the word bedchamber. And so let me break it down in some terminology we can understand. Shacking up. I'll give you the J interpretation. Chambering is lewd, immoral behavior. God tells us in Hebrews 13 and verse 4 that marriage is honorable in all, and the bed, in other words, the bedchamber, undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And, and so as a, as a child of God, we have no business walking in chambering and wantonness. Wantonness is just unbridled lust. It's also translated other places in your Bible as lasciviousness. It's just unbridled, untamed lusts. And God says, look, look, as a child of God, don't walk in that. You've got to walk honestly, not dishonestly. The third pair is strife and envying. And again, if we study the Bible, Galatians 5 tells us that those things are also works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 20 to 21 in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, You're carnal, whereas among you there is envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? Envying produces strife. And, and, and so again, listen, man, a, a church that's like Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is a church that's not walking in the Spirit. They don't have the right attire on. They're not walking the right way. And so in, in summary, you could take all six of those things and basically boil it down to this key principle. Walking honestly could easily be equated to walking in the Spirit. That's what it is. And, and I'm just going to tell you, listen, if your life is full of rioting and drunkenness and chambering and wantonness and strife and envying, 
you are not walking in the Spirit. You're not. If that's a part of your marriage, you're not walking in the Spirit in your marriage. If that's a part of your relationship with your children, you're not walking in the Spirit in the relationship with your children. If that's part of us as a body of believers at this church, we're not walking in the Spirit. God says, listen, we are, we are called to walk honestly as in the day of Christ. I'll assure you that when we see Jesus Christ face to face, we won't be rioting, we won't be drunken, we won't be shacking up, we won't be giving ourselves over to unbridled lust, we won't be stri- in strife and envying with each other. I can assure you of that. So let's just go ahead and live like that now. Let's walk in the Spirit of God so that Christ can be glorified. And then lastly, number, number five is this, we're out of time. Number five, we owe it to the world to war against the flesh. We, we owe it to the world to war against the flesh. Look at verse 14. We're not, we're not at war against this world. We know this world system is against Christ, but listen, the mission is the people that are enslaved in this world. That's the mission. Look at verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And so here's the progression. Look, when we love our neighbor, when we wake up from our spiritual sleep, when we wear the right attire, when we're walking honestly, what we are doing is we're putting on Christ. And anything short of that is not putting on Christ. And and so the point is, we need to put on Christ and we need to not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In other words, we have to war against the flesh. We're not warring against the lost. We're warring against our own flesh. We have to make sure that we don't make opportunity for our flesh to entice us to the point of lust and then sin. So that means that we have to change some things in our life. We may have to take a different route home. We may have to take the computer out to the backyard and introduce it to the baseball bat. You may not need a smartphone. You hear me? Because we keep making provision for the flesh and we wonder why we keep fulfilling the lust thereof. It's because we have put the door to, to entertain the lust right in front of us. And God says, listen, you've got to put on Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, and by the way, that's what we are in this world. I, I hate to tell you that most Christians have bought into the American brand of Christianity, where, man, this is, this is the greatest life that we're ever going to live. Heaven is real right here. God's going to bless me with abundance, health, wealth, prosperity, fame, fortune. Listen, that, none of that's biblical. None of that's biblical. God says that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. That means that we're not going to be here long. We're just passing through. And while we're passing through, let's get as many people as we can to go with us. So so he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. And here's why. Because they war against the soul. Having your conversation, in other words, your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by 
they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The point is, man, listen, we've got to learn to win the war against our flesh. Because it wars against our soul. These fleshly lusts that entice us to sin, even after we've received Christ as our Lord and Savior, this, this flesh still has a, a, a pull, a desire. It, it wants to, to, to entice itself and fulfill its own lust and, and fleshly desires. And, and God says, listen, there's a war against your soul. And you need to learn to abstain from fleshly lust. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 very quickly. It says this, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now hang on, I'm going to come back to this first, but let me tell you something. Christ's earthly ministry, he suffered in his flesh for you and me. He didn't have health, wealth, prosperity, blessing, abundance, he had nowhere to lay his head. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that when he fasted, he was hungry. He was directly attacked by the devil himself. There were a slew of religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes that were against his teaching. Political leaders that were against him. He was falsely accused, mocked, beaten, and crucified. He wasn't living his best life now. He suffered in the flesh for us. So so listen, you need need to catch this if you don't catch anything else. If you're going to ever be the Christian God has called you to be, you're going to have to suffer in the flesh for the sake of others so that they can see Christ in you. Look at the, the last part of the verse, Now we'll come back to it. God says that we're to arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ had. He suffered for us in the flesh. And then look what it says. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. There's something about suffering and holiness that is connected. Sometimes it's better that God doesn't give us what we want, but he gives us what we need, and we experience suffering in this life for Christ's sake so that we'll cease from sin. Verse 2 says that he, should, that, that, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. How much time do you think you have left? Man, listen, if I were to ask you, hey, go ahead and mark out for me on a calendar how many weeks and months and years your life has left. I mean, how much time do you think you have left? And however much time it is, God tells us in verse 2 that we shouldn't live the rest of our time in the flesh to the lust of men. But we should live it to the will of God. The truth is, you don't know how much time you have. All you know is you have today. So today, live your life to the will of God. Not to the lust of your flesh. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. It says, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The point is, we owe it to the world to war against our flesh and to suffer in the flesh so they, so they can see Christ in us. 
we owe it to them. You say, well, I don't like that. <laughs> okay. We owe it to them. We owe the world Christ-like love. We owe the world. Because of what we've experienced in Christ, we owe them the love that Christ has given us. And what that means for some of us today is that some of us need to wake up. The reality is there's probably some people in this room and watching online that are spiritually asleep because the alarm of the day of our salvation, the day of Christ, has not caused us yet to get up and to get busy. And so maybe today God has just cranked up the alarm a little bit louder for some of us to say, you know what, it's time to wake up. I've been sleeping long enough. I've been a Christian a long time. I've been a Christian a short time. It doesn't matter. If you're asleep, God says you need to wake up. Number two, some of us may not be wearing the right attire. In other words, we, we may be saved, but man, when we look at our life and other people look at our life, they don't see light, they see darkness because our life is consumed with the works of darkness. And for some of us this morning, we probably need to come to the altar and cast off some works of darkness and put on the armor of light and the armor of righteousness and the whole armor of God. Some of us this morning may need to walk honestly because our walk is not matching our talk. We're walking dishonestly as a child of God. And for some of us, we're losing the battle against our flesh because we are making continual provision for it to fill the lust thereof. We're not making any change in our life to not make provision for our flesh. And we're losing the battle. So this morning is a call to action for us as a church. It's a call to action for those that are live streaming. It's a call to action to give what we owe. That's what it is. So I want to ask you to bow your heads. Cody's going to come this morning.